Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 46 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So as is often the case with me, <laughs> I'm beginning this for the second time. It's now Sunday afternoon. Kenny is driving around with Jack-Jack. I spent a wonderful day today in Amesbury. I'm working with Coach B. That's what he goes by. His name is Brandon. He's wonderful, really, really talented CrossFit coach. Another coach there named Addie who does some nutrition stuff. And I'm healthy enough now and far enough out from having Jack to really return to competitive CrossFit. And I did a couple of competitions last fall and had a really good time. So I'm sort of back into it. It appears that my CrossFit competition season is August and September. So I'm sort of looking into that. So I went down to Amesbury today with Kaylee and Jack-Jack. Kenny had some good alone time at home. And I had a wonderful workout, CrossFit workout with Coach B, and then some alone time to sort of go over training. And he gave me some great tips for a couple of the movements in my upcoming competition. And then we went, of course, to the bakehouse and had yummy food and walked all around Amesbury. They're doing this little gnome fairy house gnome sort of competition thing. So all these different businesses have these fairy houses and you can vote on them. They were awesome. Jack was intrigued as much as a 15 month old can be intrigued with the intricacies of a fairy house, but it was good fun. It was beautiful, beautiful weather. Shout out to Jen at a store called Caravan. And I got a beautiful blue dress there. And I've gotten a couple of other things and she's just the nicest woman ever. So it was nice to see her. It's July 10th. And I am trying again. What happened yesterday was I was almost at the end, an entire podcast episode, and I ran out of space on my computer. And so I could have stopped and just deleted everything and then continued, but I have a, I'm a time crunch. I would have had to re-listen to the whole thing. I don't know. It, it's easier for me to just start and finish, you know, all at once. So here I am doing it again. <laughs> so anyway, episode 45 really delved into, you know, divorcing Eric, the time frame between that and meeting Kenny and getting to know Kenny and then marrying Kenny. This episode, episode 46, we'll talk about the first couple of years of my marriage to Kenny. And what's important here in the framework and context of A Thousand Tiny Steps is that in really, really self-analyzing a lot of the decisions I've made in my life, what I've noticed is how many times I come around to the same behavior or the same choice or the same person in a different body. I look now to so many people in my life and I think, oh my gosh, if I knew what a red flag was, <laughs> I might've avoided a lot of things. I'm going to talk about the first couple of years of marriage to Kenny. And really those were from 2000 until really the fall of 2005, maybe into 2006, those chunk of years, 98 when we really first got together to 2006, that's an eight year period of time. I feel like I often would laugh that the standard American dream is the house with the white picket fence. And I have a house with a white picket fence. It's beautiful. And during the time that I'm going to talk about in this podcast, I had two children and I loved my job and was doing really well in it. And I was coaching and, and winning awards. For this period of time, all seemed well. Is it my fault and my choices that blew it up? 
Is it other people that I let into my life that did terrible things? You know, it's so healthy and difficult sometimes to self-analyze and to look back. It's very easy to put it in a box. Well, it was a long time ago, move on. Except that oftentimes when you put things like this in a box, you bring the box with you. You carry the box with you into every decision you make. And so you haven't really moved on at all. And the only thing I think really belongs in a box that you carry with you is grief because you never stop grieving something that you've lost. Before I start, if you're watching me, you're going to see that there's another picture behind me that wasn't there before. Behind me, for those of you that watch, every picture that's behind me, there's one photograph and two paintings, three paintings rather, and a pencil sketch. And they're all of Molly or Molly and Gracie, and they're phenomenal. So the one I just added was done by Bud Lacern. If you live in Concord, Manchester, this area of New Hampshire, Lacern is a very common name. You, you always associate the Lacerns with hockey. This particular sketch, I started looking at his drawings on Facebook. He started posting these unbelievable sketches. And I asked him, would he consider doing one of Molly? And so I sent him a whole bunch of pictures. And what he did here, if you can see it, and I'm sorry to all of you that just listen, I think I have it on my Facebook page and I'll, re, I'll repost it. It's Molly's face. And when I'm looking at it behind me in the computer, on the computer screen, her face is much more clear. That's what stands out. And it looks like it's covered with things. And when you really, really look closely, you realize that it's covered with our hands. I was holding her hand and lying in bed with her. So he took a beautiful close-up of her face and superimposed, drew upon it from a picture of just our hands. You don't see us, you see our hands and you see my cell phone and the hair tie on my wrist. And when you look at it, I remember when I saw it, I, I was really emotional, it made me cry. He just captured her so alive and so dead all in one, in one drawing. So I love it. So I've added that to what's behind me and I'll keep adding. Okay, so where I ended before was our wedding and how beautiful it was and my cross-country team's involvement. And you know, here's the beginning of, of my life. <laughs> so that's where I was. So I was pregnant with Gracie when I got married. I mentioned that 13 weeks, I think. Just, you know, I got pregnant in early August and we got married in October. So maybe eight weeks. That was the funnest weekend ever. I talked about that. So shortly after we got married, really, we, we started to begin our life. We lived in this house that I'm sitting in now. I'm looking at a computer and this was actually a room that we made into an office. Our big giant desktop computer that we had, that everybody had back then, was sitting right where I have a desk now. We sort of began the process of living here. All that winter, I, so I finished coaching cross country. In the fall of 2000 was the first year that we won Class L States in New England. It was like the triple crown. And it was the most amazing, amazing time as a coach because you know, New Hampshire is a pretty intimate running community and I had run in it. And so, so many of the other coaches remembered me when I was in high school and some of them I ran against. If there's something else I miss in my job loss, it's my connection to my running community. And I think it's why I hold on to a lot of anger. That was an amazing, amazing top five. That top five all broke 20 minutes and it was this magical time. And what I remember the most is None of them knew yet that I was pregnant because I didn't let on that I was pregnant until about two weeks after New England's because we had lost baby Gordy and it was a heart defect and wasn't noticeable until 16 weeks when we had the amnio and I just couldn't face, if I was going to lose another baby, I didn't, I didn't want to have to go through telling everybody. What I remember right before the class L meet, and now it's called division one, but we had had unbelievable pressure year after year of, of losing, of coming in second, coming in third. Somebody chokes, we panic. You know, we don't run our best race on class L day or division one day now. And so I remember I had this big radio, this big silver, you know, boom box and I passed it around and I asked them all to hold on to it. Just hold on to it, contemplate its weight and what it would be like to carry this running. 
And when they had all felt it, we put it down and I said, well, this is how Manchester Central feels right now because they've won six titles in a row and everybody is expecting them to win. And if they do, and we come in second, people will just say, well, it happened again. We have no pressure at all. We can go there tomorrow and play second, third, 10th. We've done it before. Or we can go there and win. The news will be huge. They are each carrying this radio with them when they run tomorrow, and we are not. So it was pretty intense. I have to say it was a very, very intense sort of conversation. But, you know, I said, go home, relax. I don't even care if you go to bed early. We had like a later in the day race. Sleep in. Actually make yourself sleep in. Go to a movie tonight. Forget that we're competing tomorrow. Just go have fun. When I think back to some of the pep talks that have gone well and that have not gone well, that was one of my best because we really just collectively gave it away. We gave it over. Whatever happens, happens. And so we won class L's. And then a week later, we won Meet of Champions. You know, Kenny golfs in a tournament called the Harvest and he left the Harvest early to come and watch because it was so, it was so big, this team. And that was the day that my top five all broke 20 minutes. This amazing, amazing top five. And they were phenomenal and all broke 20 minutes. And then six and seven weren't far behind. We won New England's and I look at the pictures now and, and you can't tell at all that I'm pregnant. The only girl on the team that knew I was pregnant was Ember Smith. And she kept the secret well. She's a huge piece of why Gracie is named Ember. Obviously, that's her namesake. About two weeks later after this, I let everyone know that I was pregnant. And then some of the other girls let on that they'd figured it out. And it was kind of fun. It was just this big thing. But I remember at the Allstate Awards when certain runners get Allstate Awards, and I think our whole top five got it. We had this amazing, you know, team of the year sort of thing. And I was coach of the year that year in New Hampshire. And that was so important to me because I just modeled myself so much after Coach Ludi. And I worked so hard to build these teams. You know, I had 36 girls on my team. That was my biggest cross-country team of yet. One of the last years I coached, I had 60 girls on cross-country. My last year at Bow, I had 46. That's a big jump ahead in time. But, you know, a school the size of Bow, 50 girls is like one-sixth of the entire female population. That was amazing. And I, I remember coaching indoor and I'd wear these overalls and everyone thought I was so cute, my expanding belly. And, and then indoor track ended and, you know, outdoor track began and it was March and, you know, I'm pregnant and I'm coaching. And into April because Gracie didn't come until the end of April. And I never once thought of not coaching. You know, of course I took my maternity leave once she was born, but I kept coaching all the way through that year. April vacation came. Gracie was born on April 24th in 2001. And we had this nice wave of heat, summer weather. That whole vacation was just sunny and warm. And I thought perhaps I would get back to school. My due date was May 4th, but April vacation came and it was the first weekend of April vacation. And I, I had massive nesting. I'm like hosing down the front porch. I'm cleaning. I'm getting everything ready. You know, just this massive amount, burst of energy. Like I don't even feel pregnant, which is very typical just before you give birth. And so we got this wicker furniture, some of which we still have at Ames. It was called Ames. If you live in Concord, it's where Burlington Coat Factory is now. And we'd set it up in the front porch because that was the screened in porch at the time. And the back porch was not. We had it all set up and Kenny, Kenny went somewhere. I don't remember where. Maybe he went golfing. It was a beautiful day. I don't remember where he went. But I laid down on the couch and I promptly fell asleep. I had to pull the coffee table up under my belly because when I laid on my side, my belly like hung over the, that was so big. I fell sound asleep and I woke up in a puddle of drool and my friend Megan had come to visit and she poked me and that's why I woke up. Or she was walking down not to wake me up and I woke up. And there was a big stack of mail, which means the mailman had delivered mail. <laughs> Looked at me drooling and pregnant on the front porch of my house. So that was Monday, the 23rd. And that night, I was starving and I had big eggs and bacon, this huge meal. And then 
We're watching Boston Public, this wonderful TV show that used to be on, took place in the Boston public school system. And we loved it. Kenny and I watched every Monday. And in the middle of the show, my water broke. I felt this weird twinge and my water broke. And I remember we ran around like fools, like, oh my God, what's happening? And, you know, I got sat in the toilet and sounds like I'm peeing, but I wasn't. And then it stops. And so I wet myself and, but I don't look like pee. Doesn't smell like pee. Kenny, you smell it. I'm not smelling it. Like it was this whole comedy routine around my broken water. So I called the doctor's office and off I went. We packed a bag. And when we got to the hospital, I had like 12 pairs of socks in there. But I had to get ready for my assistant coach to coach the track meet the next day. Lynn, Lynn Vinskis was my assistant coach at the time. And so I had all the stuff at my house. I had it all in the back of my car so I wouldn't have to go unlock the shed and all these extra steps on the day that we were leaving. So it's all in my car. So I take everything out of the car and put it like on the driveway. In the meantime, I'm in a nightgown. And I have like a dish rag in my pants, in my underpants, so that I'm not, it was just hilarious. And so I'm waddling around, getting all ready, put everything on the porch so that they can go in and meet at Salem, I think. And then off we go to the hospital and every delivery is a bit different. And Gracie was the delivery of puke. Every contraction in the beginning, I vomited. We get to the hospital and I'm waiting and waiting. You know, we're in triage and there's not a room ready for me yet. And I'm lying there on my side, facing away from Kenny. I'm like, oh, Kenny, oh, Kenny, I'm going to get sick. And I sit up and I turn around. So I'm facing him and he's found a garbage can and he's picking it up. Out comes the vomit and he catches it in the garbage can. Like it really just projectiles out of me. I'm sorry if I'm grossing you out, but we were like, whoa. It was just one of the most amazing sort of things. So finally I'm in a room and I'm all hooked up to everything. And every time I have anything, a sip of water, a bite of a popsicle, I throw up. So I'm like, all right, no more. I can't have any more food. So I think maybe lying in a hot tub will help. So I get in the bathtub. They fill it with water and, and that's terrible. I feel even worse. So I get out. We have this great picture of me like in there, like smiling at the camera and this big belly and boobs and my mother and we're all excited. Yay. So maybe it's about midnight by now. And I've, I've had really significant contractions for a couple of hours and my water had broken. So when the water breaks, the contractions can get very intense. So I had Dr. Salchunas. Tony Salchunas was the physician that delivered Gracie. Mike Walsh was my doctor, but he wasn't on call that night. So you know, you go for nine months with your doctor and when the baby comes, if your doctor isn't working, oh, well, <laughs> too bad, so sad. The vomiting and the nausea was beginning to be overwhelming. And so my last sort of big puke into the sink, I hear this terrific splat, like a splat on the tile floor. And I look down and there's like a fluorescent green giant booger. That's all I can think of. I'm like, what am I looking at? It was disgusting. And there's this long stream of goo coming from my vagina down to said booger. So that was my mucus plug. So I wasn't a health teacher yet. I didn't know all the ins and outs of childbirth. I knew enough, but not that much. I'm like, what is a mucus plug? So here's a little health lesson, Barb, the health teacher. When you're pregnant, your cervix is the opening to your uterus and it creates a plug of mucus and that prevents germs from getting in and anything from coming out. It's like a, nature's extra protection against anything that could harm the baby. So that was phenomenal. I learned something new. I had a mucus plug and there it was. I don't ever remember seeing mollies, but I'll get to that. They finally gave me a drug called Nubane, which was wonderful. It calmed me right down. It was sort of felt like getting high without the paranoia. I laid on the bed and lose consciousness. And I'd wake up and I'd be like, how long has it been? <laughs> They'd be like 30 seconds. <laughs> so from, I would say one o'clock to three o'clock, the last couple hours of my contractions, they hurt when, you know, okay, get ready. Here it comes. I'd breathe through it and breathe through it and breathe through it. The best way I can describe my contractions is a combination between a Charlie horse in your tummy, along with like horrifying diarrhea cramps. So the cramps that make you feel like I'm either going to puke or, puke or poop, and then a Charlie horse, like a muscle cramp. And then it goes away and you're like, oh, thank God. 
And then the other thing that I had, the whole thing was mellow. I have the new bane. I'm feeling sort of high. We brought music. So it was the Lilith there. So it's like, you know, lesbian folk music. It was the best. And then my nurse practitioner was Danielle. My delivery nurse was Danielle and she was phenomenal. It was all very sort of mellow and surreal, like la, la, la. And so I had something called perineal massage, which is they massage the bottom of your vagina, like between your vagina and your butt. So it sounds sexual. It's not sexual at all. All it does is like relax everything down there so that you don't rip open when the baby comes out. But it really did calm me down. So I had my mother and Kenny, Danielle, Dr. Salchunas, and me in the music in the background. So all of a sudden in my contraction, I said to the doctor, this is weird, but I feel like I want to grunt now when the contraction comes. And he said, oh, that means you're ready to push, which actually makes sense when you think about it, when you really bear down hard or struggle to do anything, throw something heavy or lift something heavy, you, noise comes out of your mouth, you grunt or groan. So he said, that means you're ready to push. So the next time you have a contraction, push. And so this was like textbook child labor, you know, from eight o'clock at night until like two in the morning, I have contractions. And around two o'clock, I start feeling like I, I need to push. And so that was such a huge relief to me. It wasn't just this like useless pain that I couldn't do anything about. When I could push through the contraction, it took away the Charlie horse sensation and made it very purposeful. I started to push. And so I, you can feel it. And that part does not hurt. Everyone thinks that the pushing out is the hard part. There are no nerve endings inside a vagina. Up inside the vagina, there's nothing. If there were nerve endings up there, none of this would be possible. All the nerve endings in a woman are on the outside, which makes sense. That's where the pleasure would be on the outside, not the inside. I'm pushing and pushing and, and out, down comes her head and that back it goes. And I can sort of feel all this in a really, really detached way. I really wish now that I had had Kenny film it. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted to have the baby. So out comes her head and goes her head. Out comes her head and goes her head. It was very, very sort of typical. So I really started to feel that she was getting close. You can just feel a heaviness. You really feel like you're pooping because everything is just pressing down on everything. So it does almost feel like you're just pushing out a poop. It got to the point where really her head was ready to come out. Her head came out, big rest, section, 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 another big push and out came Gracie. And she was just this tender, she cried. And then she laid on my chest and I love the picture. She, her hands are still purple. She's covered with all the cheese and blood and all the stuff you're covered with when you're born. They wipe her off and leave her there. They left her there. They didn't bathe her for like six or seven hours until daylight. And they do that now. They just put heated blankets on it, a hat on her little head. All that skin-to-skin -skin contact just makes all of their, their body systems regulate. Babies are meant for that. So Gracie got onto the boob and stayed there for like a year and a half. <laughs> she was a massive nurser. She loved it. She only had breast milk. She didn't eat or drink anything but breast milk for, I would say, eight months, maybe nine months. And then it was just a little finger food. She had no interest in food. She just wanted to nurse. And so that's what she did. And then we started introducing other things at around nine or 10 months. That was Gracie. Now she was born in the middle of the night, eight at night to three in the morning. So the rest of my stay at the hospital was filled, filled, filled with visitors. That was wonderful and awful because Gracie as a newborn just went into herself and slept. And that is how she avoided all the stimulation, except that she was still receiving it. When everybody left and it was nighttime, Kenny went home that first night. Monday night, Tuesday night into Wednesday, and she screamed all night. I mean, all night. I was a basket case. I hadn't slept. The last time I slept was Sunday night. I was up all day Monday, up all night Monday night, up all day Tuesday, and then up all night Tuesday night. I was a disastrous mess. Talk about trial by fire. So then Wednesday, when Kenny came back, I'm like, you can't leave tonight. You can't leave. You know, it was just a disaster. So he stayed the next night, and we went home on Thursday with our little family. And I just remember how overwhelmed I felt. 
Gracie nursed really easily. I wasn't too concerned about that. When your nipples have never had a nursing baby, they do get all chafed. And Gracie's the only baby that gave me any nipple soreness, even all the years after, you know, until Jack was born, I nursed him just fine. And we had this wonderful first year where my mother was here all the time. I never had to worry. I, I only worked half time, but I still coached three seasons. So I was as busy as ever, but I maintained a half-time job so I could keep moving forward as a teacher and had health insurance and all of the things. I was the health insurance provider for our family. That first year was wonderful, 2001 into 2002. And about around about the time that Gracie was about to turn one, or actually she had just turned one and was just maybe heading into year two, I got my period again and I was really, really suddenly thinking I needed to have another baby. And Kenny and I were just going to have one. Well, I was never going to have kids ever. And then getting pregnant with and then losing baby Gordy made me realize that I was supposed to be a mother. And so I just thought, okay, we'll have Gracie and that will be fine. Well, except that Gracie needed her little buddy, somebody to wait for Santa with. And, you know, she had three siblings, but they were middle school and high school aged and not going to be involved in her life in any meaningful way at all. And then they would be off living their lives when she was growing up. And so we discussed it, really talked around and around about it. And I remember in June, early June, when Gracie was just about 14 months, we went to North Carolina and Rachel Umberger ran the nationals. She ran the 800 meters and she was national champion. It was the most amazing weekend. We had so much fun and we took a distance medley relay down. It was Rachel, Carrie Corbett, Ashley Barber, Chrissy Fulton. We brought Jocelyn Carpenter down and we stayed in this round hotel. It was a strange and wonderful trip, I have to say. That's where Gracie really learned to walk. She got her walking legs under her. We have these videos of her and she's just shaking and she's so pudgy. Her whole body just jiggles. It's adorable. But we realized at that time that we really didn't need to have another baby. So another thing we did for the first time, and this would begin to be a family tradition until I lost my job and things got so ugly and then we stopped going, but we started going to the Jersey Shore every summer. We went to Avalon, Stone Harbor area and Gracie really mastered walking. We have this video of her just walking on the beach, swings her arm so confidently. Jack Jack does that now. He just swings his arm and when he walks and he's done something he's proud of, he's just so, so Gracie. It's the sweetest thing. We got home from that vacation. We drove home and we went through New York. We looked at 9-11, the World Trade Center site. That was not even a year in, you know. It was horrifying to see. It was just really horrifying to see it all. Gracie was in the carriage and, and you know, she was just a little... We got home and I had a doctor's appointment and I said to my doctor, look, I'm gonna, we're going to try for another. And he said, well, you know, it could take you a while. You're still nursing. You're almost 39. You know, you're so old. Busy summers as being what they are and people in and out of our home. And I think Kenny and I maybe had sex once that whole month. A little TMI, I know, but that's the way it is. I knew within like a week. I said, oh, I just feel it. And I made the mistake of saying that I was craving Diet Pepsi. And Katie was over, Kenny's daughter. And she's like, what? That means you're pregnant. When I was pregnant with Gracie, I, had, I was chugging a glass of milk. And I had said, God, I just love milk lately. And Katie, being smart and intuitive and not knowing, was like, are you pregnant? And I said, no, I'm not. I said, I think I'm just craving milk. And of course I was pregnant, but we were weeks away from telling anyone because of all the health issues. So she's like, I knew it, I knew it. I said, well, if I had a pregnancy test, I'd pee on it, but we'll see. I said, I'm not even late for my period yet. And so we had them and I went into the bathroom. And so I'm in my bathroom and she's in the kitchen. I peed on a stick and it was, I was so early on that the line was unbelievably faint, but it was there. There was enough of the hormone in there to just tinge the line on the pregnancy test. So there was Molly. She was my, my one try baby. Actually, all of them were for the most part. Now, the thing that was different with this pregnancy, and you know, and here's where life gets weird. So I had all of these tests with Gracie and ultrasound after ultrasound to make sure she was okay. She was considered high risk because I had lost a child. Now that I had had a healthy pregnancy, I wasn't considered high risk anymore and I didn't need any prenatal testing. 
I just know that with all of the ultrasounds that went on, I think that they might've been able to see Molly's tumor, but we didn't have any of the testing, nothing. We did nothing. Just, she's going to be fine. That pregnancy was fine. I bumped out right away. So I couldn't keep a secret. We were at a meet at the Mount Washington meet, the invitational up there, great Glenn invite. And there was a coach's race. It was like, I was going to run it. I can run pregnant. No big deal. I ran pregnant with Gracie, but it was like 95 degrees. And so I didn't. And I said, no, I'm not going to run. I, I shouldn't. Won't be good for me. Everyone's just looking at me and I'm like, and they're like, why? And I just rub my tummy. I'm like, oh, you know. So that's how I told my whole team and they all went nuts. Yay. And by the time New England's came, now keep in mind two years prior, no one knew at New England's that I was pregnant. I had this baby bump. The neat thing is both times I was pregnant, we were class all state New England champions. The year in between, we had a bit of a rough year, which happens to everybody. I believe that we were class all champions. We were not New England champions. We have our championship meets and we once again win class all states, New England's. And I get coach of the year again. And this time when I go, I'm ginormously pregnant, so much bigger than the first time. We have our all-state runners and, and such. And it was just this wonderful, you know, just a wonderful time. It was just phenomenal. And my pregnancy with Molly was terrific. The difference here is she was, she was due much earlier. So track practice had just started. Her due date was April 4th. So a month earlier than Gracie's had been. And she came April 1st. A week prior, I went for my appointment. So the end of March and Dr. Walsh said, you know, you're already two centimeters dilated. I could strip your membranes, which means they sort of just, irritate the cervix enough that it facilitates labor sometimes. And I said, no, Molly, let Molly come when she wants. She comes April 1st. My labor is completely different with her. I wake up, I went to school Monday and taught, you know, March 31st, go to bed. I wake up, it's April 1st, it's a Tuesday. Gracie was born on a Tuesday and, and I go in to take a shower and I have like a tweak and I'm like, oh, oh. So I'm like, mom, what time is it? And she said, you know, eight o'clock, whatever. So I finished my shower and then I have another tweak. So I get out and I'm like, mom, I think I'm having contractions. So I call the doctor and he says, well, have your mother drop you off. So now it's daytime. Kenny's already at work. My mother's watching Gracie. Now I have to arrange childcare. So we get my sister Johanna to come watch Gracie so my mother can come to watch Molly be born. So I go to the doctors around 10 o'clock. I go in. Yep, you're four centimeters dilated. So I walk over by myself. So with, with Gracie, Kenny brought me to the hospital. My mother was there in a flash. It was this big group thing. And with Molly, I go there and I'm by myself. I walk up to labor and delivery. Here I am. And I get checked into a room and I'm just sort of sitting there by myself. And I have this wonderful nurse. And then Ellie Duhame comes in. All of Ellie's daughters either ran for me or were in, in classes that I taught. And she's this wonderful, wonderful labor and delivery nurse. So she delivered Molly, which in the short span of Molly's life, that connection is wonderful. I have a picture on the fridge of Mike and Tina, doctor and nurse and Ellie and all of us with Molly. Molly was also an eight to three baby. Gracie was like eight, eight at night to three in the morning. She was like 745 to 302. And Molly was like 815 to 345, but it was in the daytime. So I'm in there and I'm sitting, I'm calling Kenny. I'm like, get up here. I'm in the hospital. And he's trying to get everything arranged at work. And then my mother has to wait for Johanna to arrive before she can come. So I did a ton of laboring contractions by myself. This time around, I had total control over the contractions. We actually have a video of that. And I'm just, deep breaths and laboring and everything. And we have a little Molly video that the lawsuit did. It starts off with me sitting in the hospital bed with Molly in my tummy. Molly doing. The pushing was nothing, not a problem at all. The contractions would be the problem in my delivery with Molly. So Gracie was the puke baby. Molly was the poop baby. So at about noon, I called Concord High School because Katie was upset that she had not been able to see Gracie be born. So we called the high school. We got Katie dismissed. 
and she came up to the hospital. So Katie was there as well. Now, Katie is a fainter. The one rule with Katie is she had to be sitting on a bench. <laughs> she had to be sitting over at the side. So it was Katie, my mother, Kenny, and Ellie. And that was it for most of the laboring and laboring. And when I really felt like I start, was ready to push and everything, they called Mike and Tina. Mike actually got to come over and deliver. He canceled afternoon appointments and got to come and deliver Molly, which was wonderful. <laughs> Gracie's delivery was like new bane and the linen fair and perineal massage. And Mike was just old school. Every time I had a contraction, I pooped, which is really common. I didn't really realize it at the time, but I kept seeing him wiping things away and putting it away. And I never smelled it, but out it came. I pooped every time. I'm like, am I pooping? He's like, don't worry about it. And actually my first contraction, I push and I fart. And I was so embarrassed. I'm like, oh my God. The head comes down, the head goes back up. The head comes down and goes back up. And then they just stopped. My contraction stopped. And I felt like this fluttering and rippling. And I'm like, what the heck? Okay, but before I do that, let me backtrack. Molly's water did not break. So they had to break her water. So they put on like a, like a glove with like a little rubber hook. And they go up and they go up into the cervix and they, and they break the water. So when Molly's water broke, out it rushes and there was poop in it. So she had pooped in there, which is not uncommon when babies are at or beyond their due date. So I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I should have had her last week because it's called meconium. And if babies ingest it, of course, it's sticky. That newborn tar, the first like 24 hours a newborn poops, it's like tar, it's sticky, sticky. And all it does is maintain shape because the babies don't use their bum inside. They drink the fluid and pee it out, drink and pee, drink and pee. Their little bums don't do anything until they come out. So they had to bring in all this heavy artillery for Molly's birth. And so I'm a bit nervous about it, but you know, it's okay. We'll be ready. We'll see. So push, push, push. So then I tried to do it squatting. Let me get out of bed. I'll squat. So I'm squatting and, and Mike is very old school. Just looking at me like, okay. So I'm squatting and squatting nothing. So they give me Pitocin, which is a muscle contraction medicine. I get back in the bed because it's not working squatting and I'll just do it lying down. And I've got Kenny on one side, my mother on the other. Katie's sitting over there by the window. You know, Mike offers, you want to come closer? No, I'm good right here. I can see what I need to see. Now I have these unbelievable contractions. And Mike, Dr. Walsh, and all of his <laughs> being a guy and not knowing, I guess, says to me, okay, the next time we have a contraction, don't push. Well, women can give birth to babies in comas. You push, some of the pushing is on purpose, but the body pushes no matter what. I have this huge contraction. So out comes her head. And so there it is. And he's like, okay, okay. And, and I just kept pushing. I couldn't help it. She flew out like a football. In the process, I had to have several stitches down there, which was not pleasant. So unlike Gracie, who they put right on my tummy first thing, they had to take her over to make sure that, that her lungs were okay, that she had an ingested meconium. So she was also covered with it. It's that sticky stuff. So I didn't get to have cheesy, bloody Molly on top of me. They had to go and wipe most of it off and sort of bathe her up because that stuff isn't so healthy. And then when they brought her back to me, she was all wrapped up. Of course, I unwrapped her and put her on me. Sweet Molly. <laughs> she had the nastiest look on her face. Like, what the hell? Gracie was like, oh, I'm so happy to be here. And Molly was like, what? <laughs> what the hell is going on? It was just funny. And Gracie muckled onto the boob right away. Molly didn't nurse for like 24 hours. And I got nervous about it, actually. I just thought she should be nursing. Molly was a champion nurser and nursed for two and a half years. There was never a problem there. In the middle of the pushing, right around three o'clock, and she came out at 3.45, I get a phone call from Concord High School from Joyce Mammoth, the athletic secretary, and all the girls in the office, they all want to know how's it going. I'm like, hold on a minute. Ah, I'm pushing. So I said, look, I'm in the middle of pushing. I'm, having, I'm in labor right now. I'm having the baby right now. So the girls come up. When they all come up, Carrie's in the wheelchair. So I think they're faking because it's April 1st. No, 
when they were running to the car, she rolled her ankle and sprained it really badly. Ultimately, it was a good thing because it made her rest in the beginning part and focus on other things. And she ended up having a really good season. But it was just one of those things where, where, you know, it was so different than, so I had that initial group of visitors and they stayed for a little while and they left. And then that was it. Now, of course, I hadn't told anybody. There was no social media then. I really had to call people on the phone. So of course I called my school to say I won't be in and that I'm having the baby. But I did not get a big rush of visitors. I remember that whole night, it was just quiet. I made Kenny and Gracie come up. And I remember my dad came up and Gracie and Johanna. And so family came. And in the video, you can hear my mother saying, is that your baby? Is that your Molly? And Gracie took her a couple of days to realize that my tummy didn't have the baby in it anymore. It was just a beautiful time, but it was really quiet. I you know I had Kenny and, and Gracie on the floor on an air mattress. And then I put Molly in the crib and have Gracie up with me in the bed. It was interesting. It was hectic and chaotic and not restful. And because I still gave birth on Tuesday, I still had to go home on Thursday. So I got sort of like, seemed like less, less recovery time. But I stayed there at that hospital till like Thursday night. I didn't come home until like eight o'clock at night. I made most of my Thursday. Insurance would pay for that day and that day ends at midnight. So I could have stayed until midnight if I'd wanted to. I did not want to. Home we went. The, the one visitor I did get was Jackie Stock. She's a kindergarten teacher at Walker at the time. She came up to visit and we had the nicest visit. It was really special. I, I remember it now. It's hard to talk about this because I was so happy at the time. And, and I think that's the hardest part of child loss is when your life blows up and it was my job loss too. And I will have a hard time getting through those episodes with maintaining composure. Gracie came home and it was sunny and summery. Molly came home, it was a blizzard. There was like you know, this random four inches of snow on the ground and rain and the balloons were all flat and it was just, just different. I remember that one of the hardest parts was I wanted Molly to have what Gracie had. As a new mother, I thought the second child should have everything the first child had, but there was no other child. And all Molly would know was a reality with Gracie. And looking back on it now, I could have made it easier on myself, but I tried so hard. You know, I'd go up with Molly and try to nurse her to sleep and put her down so that Gracie could come up and I could nurse her and snuggle her. She wasn't nursing anymore, but you know, Gracie slapped up under my chin. Gracie was just glommed on me all the time. And so Molly's arrival was hard on her. And one of my, one of my saddest memories is I nurse Molly and I finally get her to sleep and I put her down and I roll over and there's Gracie and she's facing away. And I pick her up and, and put her in my arms and just tears are pouring down her face. And you know, she's just two and what is this baby? And why aren't you hugging me? And you know, it just made me, it makes me sad now just because she was so sad. And it was such a process for her. It took about six weeks. She had a really hard second birthday. Another amazing memory I have, and I think I've shared this before, is Gracie turns two and here's this, you know, three-week-old, four-week-old baby. And she turns two and she's exhausted and overstimulated. And I come downstairs and Kenny's giving her a bath. We only had one bathroom at the time. And she's laying in the bathtub and he's just singing to her softly, happy birthday to you. And my mother and I both just started bawling because he was just being such a good, such a good dad. So... That was the beginning of Molly. And I went, you know, right back to coaching. I remember she was born, you know, I went two weeks later, I, you know, I'm coaching again. And I had a high jump coach, Chris Sullivan. He coached all the jumps for me. And his wife was having babies around the same time I was. And I was down there stretching and doing all this stuff. And he's like, how can you do that? You just had a baby. But I was pretty fit and I recovered really quickly. Molly was a longer recovery vagina wise than Gracie was because she had a giant head and she came rushing out and all that. But you know, that spring was very similar to the spring with Gracie, balancing track meets and nursing babies in the press box and, you know, just living my life, living my life with my classroom and my teams. And I just loved it. So the year after Molly was born, I did the same thing. Halftime at Walker, still coaching all that next year after she was born. So I'm lucky. 
During those years, Kenny was working full-time. He was running a business and gone most of the time. My mother was here all the time. And I do know that Molly and Gracie together was hard on her. The first year, of course, it's the both of us. So we have this new baby, but I'm there a lot. You know, I'm not alone. I mean, we had our moments. We had our moments. There were times when, when my mother and I really fought. And it was just both of us wanting so hard to do it right. One of my favorite early memories with Molly is I went to the New England. So Molly nursed and nursed and nursed. She was a voracious nurser. And so the New Englands would mean I was leaving my house at 6.30 in the morning and going all the way to Connecticut to attract me all day and then coming home. So I packed a breast pump and I packed all this stuff up and I forgot it. And so I didn't even think about it until about two in the afternoon. And I started to feel that my breasts were going to get engorged. So my plan was to go to the bus and pump. And then I would you know, put it in a cooler and bring it home. And, and then I would have enough milk. Well, I forgot it. I called my mother, you know, landline, have to find a phone. Or I had a cell phone by now. I did have a cell phone now, but so I called home. Yep, I see your breast pumps are all here. So I'm like, okay, you're gonna have to line them up because it's gonna be ugly. So I had this wonderful bus driver who's like, I'll go to Target and buy you a breast pump. And I'm like, no, no, it's okay. I don't, I don't have bottles. I don't have any of it. We leave the meat and we go out for eat. We did quick takeout and we're driving home. And in the meantime, my breasts are filling with milk, like bigger. So I put on two sports bras and then I wrap an ace bandage around. And I'm, I am so uncomfortable. I am so uncomfortable utterly uncomfortable. And then, you know, now they're as hard as rocks. So it was just like, I was miserable. So the bus drives right by my house to go to Concord High coming off the highway. So I had the bus driver drop me off. There was another coach in the bus and I gave my keys and then to my car keys and everything to Chelsea Pollock. Chelsea's married now with a baby. And I said, you'll remember this when you have babies. And so off they go. So I come into the house and, and Molly's awake, but she's, you know, fine. My mother's there still. Gracie's asleep. It's like 10 at night. I had a, two single pumps and then I had a double pump. And I said, Kenny, put big bottles on. So we put eight ounce bottles on this breast pump. So I sit, I'm sitting in the bathroom because I just figured this is the easiest place and we're plugged in. When I take off the bras, it's like my boobs like expand. It was the creepiest thing I ever saw. I put the pumps to my breasts and within three seconds, eight ounces out of each breast, it filled. I have 16 ounces of milk. I'm like, change. We pull those pumps off and put new pumps on. And while I'm pumping with the new pumps, my mother and Kenny are quickly taking the full bottles off and putting empty bottles on. I pumped 64 ounces of milk, 32 ounces out of each breast in like 12 minutes. It was unbelievable. And I was just like, oh my God, thank God, thank God. So I stopped. I needed to nurse Molly and I was afraid you never run out, but I'm capping up all that, all the milk and all these bottles of milk are on the kitchen table. So Chelsea and some of the track girls come into the kitchen. And they look and they're like, what are we looking at? And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. And then I nursed Molly and had plenty of milk and in the morning was able to pump my usual morning thing. So that's one of my favorite early memories of having Molly. One of my favorite nursing memories with Gracie is I'm nursing her up in the press box. It's like a dual meet. And Coach Coffrin's son, Timmy, he's all grown up now with kids of his own. He was like nine, nine or 10 at the time. And he came up to talk to me because, because I was nursing. And his mother's like, don't be fooled. He just wants to see a boob. It was really cute. Sorry, Timmy, if you're hearing this, it was adorable. He was a very articulate, well-spoken young man, and he had all these ideas about what he would do when he grew up. So anyway, the first year of Molly's life, which would have been now going into year three for Gracie, was wonderful. She was this beautiful little newborn baby, and she nursed well. She was much easier food-wise. I got really bad kidney stones. I had to go off to the hospital in an ambulance. One of the reasons I trusted the ER so much, they took really good care of me there. I had all this pain and vomiting. I woke up and just got so sick. They did a CAT scan and saw that I had a kidney stone. And so I had to stay in the ER all day for hours. They gave me pain meds. So Molly had to have formula for like a week. I was full of dye. So I had to pump and dump to get the dye so I could not 
pass on the dynamoly. And I had to have a stent put in. It was, oh, it was just the whole month of December when she was like, you know, eight or nine months old there. I was in a lot of pain and, and had to take some pain meds and all for the, for the stent. They got the kidney stone out and everything was fine. But Molly nursed for a long time. So as Molly turned one and then Gracie turned three, Gracie became obsessed with dancing. And so I remember she had the Teletubbies. How many of you remember the Teletubbies? Your mom's out there. I love the Teletubbies. They're definitely weird, but I was all in. And so Gracie was obsessed with this little girl. These are my tap shoes. And she got into dance. And Molly sat on Kenny's or Maya or my mother's lap for that whole first year of her life and watched with her giant eyes every step of every class. And by the end, when she turned two, she could do every step. And so Molly started dancing at age two. That was that. When I look at, you know, baby Gordy, I didn't even know I was pregnant with him. He was not planned. I didn't even know for 14 weeks. And then the 10 weeks I got to know him were all around not being viable. And then Gracie and Molly were just so excited. And I have my life, the man that I'll be happy with forever. And I have my house and I have my picket fence and and I have everything that, I, that I've always wanted, you know, like I have all this. And that's just how I felt. Like I have all these things and everything's going to be fine. And I look at those, how different all of those babies and what I thought was ahead of me are compared to Jack. It's very difficult for me. You know, Jack's conception happened in a lab. There were all these varying degrees of techniques and styles and hormone levels and timing that went into him. Jack was truly a scientific conception. Conceived in love, but, you know, very, very different than Gracie and Molly and even baby Gordy. And I don't have this idealized, happy little white picket fence idea of life anymore at all. The picket fence around my house needs to be replaced. It's falling apart. And that's such a metaphor sometimes when I look at where I am now in bringing a baby into the world. But when I think of Gracie and Molly, it's about starting my family and then having a family and increasing Kenny's family. And when I look at Jack, it was just a message in a dream. And I know that I've reiterated this number of times. I don't have that fluffy, oh, we're a little happy family. Kenny is a wonderful father. I do the best I can as a mother. And here's Jack. And I do not know what that means for us as a quote unquote family. You know, I've been very, very clear that my ability to love and be loved is something that I feel is behind me. And maybe that's pathetic to some of you listening. Doesn't matter to me anymore what people think. It can't. I know my realities. And right now, <laughs> the best I can do is be a good mother to Jack. I have no desire to, to be in love right now. That's not in the cards for me. Molly's death decimated so much of what was my life that when I look at where I was at when I created Gordy and Gracie and Molly and where I'm at when I created Jack, there's no comparison. And it's interesting sometimes to me, you know, my my two boys are rife with science and testing and ultrasounds and everything else. And Molly and Gracie are these sort of white picket fence, happy little creations. And, you know, and here I am approaching my 59th birthday with this sweet little amazing baby boy. And who knows what his reality will be growing up. I don't have any ideas now. I lost too much in the process of raising Gracie and Molly in so many ways. So I'll end here. I will say that those from 1998 and that tragic year I had with Kenny's marriage falling apart and all the, the trauma around that, to moving in together, to creating baby Gordy in 99 and then losing baby Gordy weeks after we knew we had him, to putting our lives back together after that and getting healthy and getting married, creating Gracie, having a wonderful, wonderful first year of Gracie's life, deciding to have Molly, 
creating Molly, having Molly, and now having these two beautiful little girls and going along into what I think will be happiness for a long, long time. And then the reality of what happened, it's really difficult for me to ponder sometimes. Molly turned two in 2005 and she was still nursing like a champ then. And that was when I had my foot operated on. You know, talk about the more things change, the more they stay the same. I had my first foot surgery on, on the foot I just had redone in 2005 when Molly was just heading into year two. And that summer I had a hernia operation and that's why she had to stop nursing. And I remember she called it Badoot. And I remember just saying, okay, mommy has to have an operation. And that means Badoot will be, will be all done. One sort of neat story about Molly older is she got really, really sick, a bad stomach bug just after she turned two. And so she couldn't keep any food down, but she could keep breast milk down. She nursed and nursed and nursed. Of course, when you nurse a baby a ton, the milk comes back. So all of a sudden I was like chesty, chesty barb again for like a month. And then she went back to, you know, just morning and night. Or when I got home, I would get home from track practice and sit on the couch. Our green couch is where the brown couch used to be. And that was another reason it was so hard for me to give it away. I have such memories of her. I would come back from track practice and I would sit down and she'd climb into my lap and lift up my shirt. And she'd say, oh, here you are, Badoot. I missed you today. And she'd nurse away. And I'm all sweaty and gross back from track practice. Another memory I have of Molly, and this, for those of you that believe in the other side and that we have souls and stuff and that we're connected to, you know, the spiritual realm. I was nursing Molly. She was maybe eight weeks old. She was little. And I'm nursing her and looking at her and talking to her. And little babies, they don't focus right away. They don't focus with recognition for a few weeks. And then their recognition is still infantile. They're babies. And I remember nursing Molly and she was looking at me and looking at me and and I stared at her and I looked away and she like tapped me. It was this deliberate movement on her part. And it was early for that. And I looked down and she's looking at me and my neck hairs go up because all of a sudden it was like I was looking at a 20 year old. Like I was looking at a face that knew I was the mother and she was the baby. Like there was knowledge in the expression. And I just got chills from head to toe. And we held each other's face glance for seriously a good 20 seconds, a long time. And then it was like, it was gone. And she was just a baby again. I remember it was just such an intense moment. And I remember Gracie and Molly both would follow things along in the, at the ceiling. And who were they talking to? Molly, Molly had a whole conversations with, with the air. And, you know, so was she talking to my great-grandmother? Was she talking to my Grammy? Who was she talking to? You know, sometimes it was just interesting to ponder those things. So heading into the school year 2005, I had no reason to think that anything would change for me in my life at all. I had these two healthy, happy girls. Molly started dance and we had this sort of routine going. I do have to say, as I ponder the next years in my life, what I realize is everything was good. In the subconscious mind of Barbara, when things are good, that's when the danger lurks. That's when the undertoad comes back. When I was a little girl, my abuse wasn't all the time. It happened a handful of times over a number of years which was a wonderful thing. It wasn't a nightly thing. It wasn't anything I could predict. But what, what I remember most profoundly about it is that when it hadn't happened for a while and I stopped being vigilant, when I stopped sleeping with like, you know, 20 pairs of underpants on or, or I stopped what my protective defenses were, I would suddenly realize, uh-oh, it's probably gonna happen again. You know what I mean? Like complacency and comfort and relief and safety always turned into the next time, which of course, my 10-year-old mind and my 8-year-old mind and my 12-year-old mind made it predict those things, right? Like the complacency caused it to happen. Well, complacency was just, it was a left time had gone by that I forgot about it on, on a daily basis. It wasn't prevalent in my head. 
And then of course it would happen again. And of course I would own it and take all this blame. That pattern in my life has repeated itself a lot. Whenever I have a relationship that is going really well, uh uh-oh, it's going well. Oh, it's going well. And I think back to the girl in the book, and I mentioned it in the last episode. I'll mention it again. And, And I hope those of you that have suffered from abuse like I have or have this in your past, take this and learn from it or just take comfort that you're not alone in feeling these things. But the girl that would be safe in a rehab in a therapy session or a hospital and she would escape and, and recreate horrifying, traumatic, damaging events for herself. And it's because that was where the safety was or the familiarity. That was what you knew and you create what you know. And we do this. We do this all the time. We do this in wonderful ways. You know, we recreate the positives in life as well. I have a lot of wonderful things I do because I grew up with those things being done. Hiking and, and my love of nature and music and the outdoors and my love of the violin and, you know, so many things I love because I was taught to love those things. And so you recreate those things as well. But when I look at 2005, I remember one time I put a Facebook post and it was long after I lost my job. And there was a cartoon when I was little with a little boy who used to work with Mr. Peabody and they would go in the Wayback Machine and it was a time machine and it would take them way back to and just a cute little history cartoon for kids. And it was Mr. Peabody. And the little boy, whose name I don't remember right now, would say, where to today, Mr. Peabody? And he would say, let's get into the Wayback Machine and find out. And I remember I put, oh, Mr. Peabody to the Wayback Machine, summer 2005. And I actually remember Roy messaging me and asking me, or maybe just on Facebook, what was 2005? And I said, the last time I was truly happy. You know, so many, so many things started to sort of fall apart at that time. And of course, my initial reaction is that I made them fall apart. Hopefully, as I share these different things, all the different threads, I'll find that, (laughs) yeah, maybe I made a decision that caused these things to happen, but I don't think I ever woke up and said, hey, I think I'll fuck up my life today. Or, hey, I think I'll screw up my life today. You know, I, I know that I've never, ever woken up. I've never deliberately decided to hurt anybody. And when I repeatedly put myself in the path of people that, take great pleasure in hurting others. (laughs) I have to wonder like, why do I set myself up for this? So anyway, summer 2005 is where this one will end. So I've been married now five years. My parents are still living in Albin Street. I have two little beautiful girls. I'm teaching at Walker School still and coaching three seasons a year now, cross country, indoor and outdoor track. I was a three season coach for 10 years, a long time. And I miss it. I miss all of that. As I wrap up this episode, it's July 10th. I have seen my first RB Productions summer program theater show. It was, they did Rent. Oh my God. For those of you that have never seen Rent, I've never seen it. So I saw the junior version, the high school version, which leaves a lot out of it. But it was written at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And it centers around a whole faction of people living in New York City. And they owe rent money. Their electricity gets shut off. And it's the whole play is about how they have to fight just to be seen. One of the main characters I'd seen him a couple of months ago in the play once, and he did a phenomenal job there as well. He just portrayed this somebody love me and love me for me, who I am character. And, you know, I was in college when, when AIDS was sort of discovered and it was the 80s and then the 90s. And, you know, Ryan White and this little boy that caught AIDS and he wasn't allowed to go to school and Elton John befriending him and Princess Diana going and hugging AIDS patients. And how it was attached to the gay population, which was so just wrong on so many levels. But because of how it could be transmitted, it was just an easy way for AIDS to be transmitted. And oh my God, this play was phenomenal. And I just, I love the fact that this is a youth theater company. It's children's theater. A lot of children's theater companies just stick with fluffy things, Disney, Disney themed musicals, 
this is a lot like Les Mis. There, there are no spoken lines here. Everything is sung. And there are these wonderful like voicemail messages from mothers to their missing children. Like, Come home and who are you now? And oh my God, it was amazing. It was amazing. And so I saw that last night and I sat, you know, I cry because Molly loved RB and her first play was an RB play and it changed her life. And so I sit in that theater, the theater that I've seen her perform in so many times and she's six years gone, but it doesn't feel that way to me. Exactly seven years now, we're in year seven. The end of July is Legally Blonde and Molly and Gracie did Legally Blonde and it was the last show that year and it was at the end of the summer. So I think the dates will line up where they'll be putting on Legally Blonde. So I watch and I sit and I ache because I want her back. And I want it not to be the way it is, but the Molly B Foundation supports, financially sponsors the whole theater company. We gave them a chunk of money so that they would never go away because I remember Molly coming home and saying, mommy, I found my people. I found where I fit. And all we want to do is fit, right? And so I love that Clint Close, the director of RB Productions, is willing to choose plays for his high school students and for these students who, some of these students are middle school, very young. This is a provocative, important play. So now I have to watch the movie so I can get the story better. But I just was blown away by it and just blown away by the fact that this theater company is willing to tackle such important messages, especially now where our political culture is so ugly. So had I recorded this podcast yesterday, it would have been pre-rent and I wouldn't have been able to share with you how important it was to me to see it. Next week, I'm going to soothe my soul with Beauty and the Beast and Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and then we'll do Matilda, which is some Roald Dahl and then Legally Blonde. That's where I'll end. So something I did to make myself happy is I get free tickets to the shows. And so I didn't go Friday night, but some girls that I used to coach at Bo didn't. So I gave them their free tickets, four of them. And I had 10 and I gave them the other six. I'm like, give them away, make people happy. And they had so much fun giving away these tickets because, you know, people are surprised. So last night I went, I'd given away six and mine made seven. So I had three more. So I saw people walking in. I'm like, have you bought your tickets yet? And this first group said all but one. And I'm like, oh, here you go. And I gave away the ticket. Another group came in. Have you bought your tickets yet? Not yet. Well, here's two less that you have to buy and give the tickets away. So it just made me happy to just surprise people with free tickets to a show. It was really fun. And so in terms of self-care and being good to myself, what I did was I gave away some tickets. And the other thing I've done, I have this swimming pool in my yard and I haven't gotten in it, hardly gotten in it last summer. Jack was a newborn. I've just decided that I will get in the pool every day for at least 30 minutes, float around or listen to music or play on my phone, feel the sun on my back and just breathe and calm down and focus and then plan my life and feel better about it. That's what I'm doing for myself. That's my oxygen. Giving away tickets to shows that will promote the Molly B Foundation and RB Productions and getting in the pool to feel the sun on my back. That's what I want you to do. Find things that you can do for others that make you happy and find things you can do for yourself that make you happy. And as always, as I end this missive, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.